0: We've been going verse by verse through the book of Philippians. And we've been reading this letter that Paul wrote when he was sitting in the Roman jail, awaiting his execution. And he is teaching the church in Philippi, a church that he loved deeply, a church that he had planted. And he's teaching them um, that God is always working in them, that they are becoming the people that God has called them to be. And we understand that this question of who am I and who am I becoming We are constantly processing this question, we're aware of this question, we need to be reminded of who we are and what we're becoming, and also who God is and what He's doing, Um, especially when we go through difficult seasons, when there's doubts, when there's cynicism, criticism, bitterness, anger, uh, when all those emotions arise in us, we need to be rooted, we need to be grounded in our identity and who God has called us to be. And we desperately need to have that answer of, who am I becoming? Who am I? God, where are you? And God, what are you doing? And the question all along is, wouldn't it be great to have a clear, definitive answer to those questions? And the answer to that is, we do, right? We find them here in this letter. We find them in the Word of God. And we've been learning these last few weeks that, one, God is always working. God never stops. God doesn't take a day off. He doesn't go on vacation. He doesn't step out of the office. He doesn't go on break. We do those things. We get tired. We get burnt out. But God is always working, and He's working on us. We learn that God is always working through our struggles, that through our challenges in life, that when we're feeling defeated, when we're feeling down, when we're feeling discouraged, God is always working even through our struggles. Last week, we talked about how God works through our attitude, right? He gives us this upside-down attitude where, where we're taught to live selflessly and we're taught to live a life that we give ourselves away so that God would increase in us. It's an upside-down attitude, and God is always working on it. And here in the, the back half of chapter 2, Paul sh- turns his attitude and, or his attention to uh, an act of obedience, There's been some key verses that Paul has been teaching us through this letter, beginning back in chapter 1 in verse 6, where he says, I'm certain that God who began the good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ's return. That tells us that God is always working. In verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul calls us to live a life of holiness. He says, walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And he calls for the church to be united. He says, have one mind, have one spirit. He says we're standing in this struggle together. In chapter 2, he teaches us that Jesus is our example. He taught us last week about the idea of kenosis, which is this idea of Jesus giving up his divine privileges, Jesus releasing and not having to hold on to godliness, because it was always his, coming to live on earth in the form of a human, born a baby. And it says that Jesus was obedient to his father, even unto death. Paul saying, the example that we have is Christ. Now beginning in verse 12, in some translations you see the word, therefore. Paul is now saying, I'm going to build this part of the letter on everything I've just taught you over the last chapter and a half. And what Paul is speaking about here is this idea of obedience. I once heard a story of a little boy whose mother told him, he said, she told him, she said, Look, you could play with your toys, you could take out whatever you want, you could make a mess of whatever, as long as you pick up your toys when you're done playing and put them away. And the little boy excited, saying, You know, he was very creative, very artistic. He took everything out of his toy bin and made a huge mess, scattered it all over the floor. And, and then he was looking at the clock, and he noticed that the time for his piano lessons were, were, were coming. He practiced piano at home. So he thought he would be slick, and he said, well, I'm not going to clean up the mess that I just made because I'm, it's time for my piano lessons. And, and the piano lessons, that I'm, I'm going to play some hymns. Maybe mom will be gentle with me if I'm playing some hymns, you know, on the piano. But I'm not going to clean my room. The mother walked in and she said, son, what are you doing? And he said, well, it's my piano lesson time. I'm, I'm practicing piano. And listen, mom, I'm playing hymns. I'm praising Jesus. And she said, but you didn't pick up your toys. You didn't clean up your room. And she said, but I'm praising Jesus. Aren't you happy that I'm I'm, I'm playing hymns and I'm singing about Jesus and praising Jesus? And the mom told him something very deep and very profound. And I, I want us to consider this today. She, the mother said to the son, she said, well, what good is it praising Jesus if you're disobedient? And it was like, wow. We love to worship. We love to praise Jesus. We love to pray to Jesus. We love to acknowledge Jesus. We love to live for Jesus. But but what good is all of that if we don't obey him? I remember as a, as a young boy, myself, going out, and we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have uh, these devices. Now if you want your kids to come home, you send them a text, hey, it's time to come home, get in the house, it's curfew or whatever. Uh, Back when I was growing up, this was my text message, right? The streetlights, remember the streetlights? Once that streetlight came on, that was your text message. That sent you a message, and it said, hey, uh, uh, it's getting close to getting home time. And I remember being at the parks, and the parks would empty out as the lights would come on, and Kids would begin to go home, and I remember sometimes walking home, and I I, I would just say, man, why do I have to come home? This is bogus. I mean, the the game was just getting good. The hangout was just getting fun. More people are just showing up. And here i got to head home. Man, my parents are bogus. They're mean. They're cruel. I would be complaining the whole way walking home. Why do I have to go home? Everyone is still hanging out, having a good time. Why do I got to do this? And I, I would just think, man, my parents are so cruel to me. Anybody ever think that? You see, we don't like obedience. (laughs) We struggle with obedience. And now if you're a parent, you know when you ask your child to do something, they give you that crazy look like, did you just tell me to do this? Can I tell you today that God knows that same crazy look that your kids give you when you disobey Him? And we look at God sometimes like, God, are you crazy? You want me to do that? You see, we struggle with disobedience. We don't like disobedience. Nothing really positive comes to our mind when we think of disobedience. Why? Because we don't like being told what to do. We rather have it be our agenda. We like blazing our own trail We like being our own boss. We want to be our own master. So we don't like listening to other people. I don't want to follow your agenda. I want to do what I want to do. And oftentimes that's the same attitude that we approach God. But the funny thing is, now that I've grown up and matured a little bit, I look back at what my parents asked of me, and I know now that, man, they had my best interests at heart. And you see, when you're walking with God and you're walking with Jesus, and it's, obedience is a struggle. When we rebel, when we act out, we're like that, that kid who says, God, you're cruel. You're asking me to give up all of this. You're asking me I can't do no, uh, these things that I really like to do that, that feel great. But man, when you grow and you mature, you understand that what God asks of you is for your benefit. You see, Scripture makes it very clear the importance of obedience. The prophet Samuel in the Old Testament said, listen, they asked him, they said, is is it better to sacrifice to God, right, to give to God and and, and to offer up sacrifice to God? Is that better or is obedience better? And this is what the Lord told Samuel to speak. He said, listen, he's telling the people, he said, listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better is better than offering the fat of rams. So in other words, there's no no gift you could give. There's nothing you could give that God values more other than your complete 100% obedience to His Word. Nothing else. The prophet Isaiah, speaking on the behalf of God in chapter 1, says, If you will obey me, you will have plenty to eat. It tells you the blessing of God when we walk in obedience. And even Jesus himself was teaching his disciples, and he says, Look, if you love me, if you love me, not know about me, not follow me, not kind of like me, but if you love me, obey my commandments. And this is where we give God the crazy look, Right? because we know what God commands of us love your enemies pray for your enemies God don't look out for myself pour myself out what no sex before marriage forgive others who've hurt me don't cast stones don't get revenge don't get paybacks God you want me to do that listen the invitation of obedience is not to live life in a way that's easy. But the invitation from Jesus that He gives us is to see the blessings of God through your obedience. It's to arrive at the point where after you've obeyed, you look back and you say, wow, God, you had my best interest at heart. This is the call that Jesus gives us to have this different perspective of obedience. And if we are in Christ, if you are indeed in Christ, and you've been made brand new in His image, it means that God is working on you. He's working in your struggles. He's working in your attitude. And He's also working in your obedience. If you've been encouraged, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if you've been changed by Him, if you've been loved by Him, if you've followed Him and and lived for Him first, then others next, if you're going to walk this life in a way that's worthy of Him, and if your identity is found in Him, then we must obey Him. The big idea today is that God is always working on who we are becoming. And He works in our obedience. And He does it by empowering us to live a life completely devoted to Him. So in verse 12, Paul writes this to the church. He addresses them and he says, dear friends, again, this, this love that Paul has for these people, this deep longing that he has to be with them. He wants to be with them. He doesn't want to be in a jail. He wants to be with his people. He wants to be with his, with his spiritual family. He wants to be with his, with his crowd, with his crew. And, and there should be that same longing with us. I pray that if you're watching from home, I pray that there's this yearning and that there's this longing for you to be amongst the brethren. If you're completely satisfied and completely happy being apart and being on your own and being away from the church family, listen, there's something broken there. There should be a deep longing and a heart-breaking pain of saying, I long to be amongst the brothers and sisters of of God. Worshiping with them, praying with them, believing with them, walking this journey together with them. Why? Because we're called to community. And you see that here in Paul, and he says, dear friends... You always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Other translations say, work out your salvation. Obeying God, there it is. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Other translations might say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul is saying to you, and what God is speaking, is saying, look, I know it's not easy. This is very hard to do. But you are called not only to hear the Word, but do what the Word says. The word in the Greek for obey is two words put together. It's the word hupo aku. Hupo aku. Hupo means under. And aku means to hear. What that word obedience means is that when you hear something, you come under it. You obey it. You follow it. Your first instinct is yes, not maybe, or we'll see, but it's hupo, okuo. It's saying when you hear the command, you follow it. What Paul is saying here is obey. And it makes me ask myself, when you hear the word, how do you hear it? Do you hear it and come under it, or do you hear it and question it? Do you hear it and rationalize it and say, mm, love my enemies, pray for those who hurt you, forgive others? Yeah, I don't know about that. Paul is saying it begins by coming under what God's Word has been saying. And it's an attitude of the heart. You've got to get this part here that obedience is an attitude before it's an action. Obedience is an attitude It starts internally before it goes externally. And if internally the word is just another suggestion, just another, hey, you should try this, or you know what, if you have time, maybe consider doing this. If you don't come under, if it's just something else you put on your shelf, you don't obey. But when you hoopo a kuo, that means that that you do come under the word. That the word is supreme. That when you when you hear the word, you obey the word. It's an attitude. It's internal. It's internal before it's external. So it starts in here. Now I want to make sure that you get this part. Paul says, "Work out your salvation." He doesn't say, "Work for your salvation." You see, salvation is a gift. But you work it out, you are able to enhance it, you are able to, to show the fruit of your salvation. You don't work to earn your salvation, that's given to you, but you work out your salvation. You grow, you mature, you grow in obedience. You see, to us, our view of salvation is a little bit different, it's very westernized. When we think of salvation, we think of heaven, we think of eternity with God, and we think of all this glorious benefit that we get by saying yes to Jesus. But to the Jewish people that this was written to, to the early church, this idea of of salvation meant justification. It meant that you have been made right. It was something that happened in the past. But it also meant your sanctification. Not only your justification, something that's been done for you already, but it meant your sanctification, your present, who you were becoming, the, the, the discipline, the growth within you. And it also meant your glorification, something that would happen in the future. This understanding of saying, look, I'll never be finished uh, being worked on. right? Like Paul said, God will continue the work in you until the day He comes. So you never get to the point where you say, wow, I made it. God's done working with me, everyone. Check me out. No, you are always under construction. God will be working on you until your very last breath. But when you take that last breath and you go to the other side and you see Him, you will be raised glorified, right? You will have a glorified body and you will be made like Him because you're in His presence. So this idea of salvation to the Jews was justification, sanctification, and glorification. And that's all true. But you still have to work it out. You still have to work harder. You see Ephesians 2 and in verse 8 and 10, it tells us, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. You can't work for it. You can't earn that. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things or the good work we have done. So you can't brag about it. No one could walk around and say, man, I've earned my salvation. Look what I've done. You're saved by grace through faith. We understand that. Verse 10, it says, For we are God's masterpiece. The word there in Greek for masterpiece is poemia. Literally, a song, a poem. Think about that. You are a song for God. That means He's authoring you. That means He's fixing you. That means he's, He's putting His works on display through you. It says we've been created anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that He planned for us long ago. We can work out our salvation. Why? Because we already have it. But it takes work. It takes work. Learning what our salvation means. Learning to apply our salvation to our identity, to our psychology, to our sociology, to the way we see the world, to our worldview, to our interactions with people. It means failing and getting back up. But Paul says, work out your salvation. And he says, do it by obeying God with fear and with trembling. Now, I know you're probably thinking, look, how do I do this? This is hard. How do I obey the things God has called me to do? Because maybe you're sitting here and you know God has called you to do some very difficult things. Maybe you know you've needed to have that difficult conversation. Maybe you know that you've needed to forgive that person who hurt you. Maybe you know that you've been called to foster care a child. Maybe you know that you've been called to start a business. Maybe you know that you've been called to take a step of faith and share, your, share your, your beliefs with your friends. How do you do these things? You know you've been called to live in purity. But how do we do this? How do we ever walk in obedience, God? I mean, it's so difficult, right? Think of that child that looks at you like you're crazy when you ask him to do something. Paul gives us the answer in verse 13. And man, this is so important here because we've grown up in a culture that's so performative where you have to achieve everything. Where it's about go, 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 go. Once you get one achievement checked off the box, go on to the next one. Self-improvement is what's king in our culture. You doing you. Here Paul blows that all up in verse 13 and look at what he says. He says, This is how you come to obey God. For God is working in you, giving you the desire, and catch this, and the power to do what pleases Him. How are you able to obey? How are you able to forgive your enemies and release those who've hurt you and do these impossible things that Christ asks you to do? You don't do it in your own power. You don't do it in your own strength. Paul says, listen, you don't even have the desire to do those things. Your desire is to do the opposite. You want revenge. You want paybacks. You want to lash out in anger. Hey, you want to fulfill the desires of your flesh. You don't have the desire to walk godly. You don't have the power to walk godly. But God does. And He gives you that power. Your obedience requires... The enabling power of God, which is at work in your life. Now this is so liberating, because you know what? There's many people who say, I have to work this thing out with fear and trembling. That means I have to, you know, every day work on it, work on it, work on it. I have to struggle, I have to beat myself up over the head. I have to pull myself up by the bootstraps. Listen, friend, don't burn yourself out. You don't have the power to walk in full obedience to God. But He does. And his power is at working you. That word power there in the Greek, and I know there's a lot of Greek today, but this is so important. It's the word eneserion. Eneserion. You know what word in English we get from eneserion? Energy. It's saying God is pumping his energy in you so that what you used to think was impossible to do, like forgive someone, now becomes possible. Why? Because you're awesome? Because you're great? Because you're so holy? No, remember, you don't work for your salvation. God's power works in you. God is filling you with that energy. Listen, I don't know what you're up against today, but you know God has been asking you to do something. And it's something bold. It's something courageous. It's a step. And you're thinking, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to walk in obedience to this. Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe you're questioning your calling. Maybe it's an addiction that you're calling to break. Maybe it's a marriage that God is calling you to fix. Right? And you're saying, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And you know what my answer is to you? I don't know either. But I do know something. I do know that the same power from Ephesians 1 that says, raise Jesus from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work inside of you. I do know that the same power that filled the early church when they were hiding and cowering for their lives, and they were broken, and they were fear-filled, and they didn't want to do anything. I know the same power that in Acts 1 says descended upon them, that same power of the Holy Spirit that empowered this church to go and change the world, that same power is at working you today. I don't know how you're going to fix your things. I don't know how you're going to walk in obedience. But I know that the same power that Jesus spoke of in Luke 10 when he said, look, I'm giving you authority. In other words, I'm giving you power. I'm giving you the energy. I'm giving you the mojo, right, to tread on serpents, to tread on scorpions, and nothing by the enemy of the enemy will hurt you. You'll have power over everything that he does. That same power is at work in you. And what's sad is that many people disqualify themselves. We, we put ourselves on the sideline because our whole life we live thinking, how am I going to do this? I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid to step out for God. I'm so afraid to live out my faith because I think I'm going to blow it. I think I'm going to fail. I don't know if I could fulfill it. It seems so intimidating to live this life where, where, where we have to obey Christ. So what we do is we sideline ourselves. We pull ourselves out of the game. And you know what you do? you miss it. You miss God's move in your life. Because the assumption is that I got to do it. I have to work it out. I just have to work a little bit harder. No, look, it's relying on his power more inside of you. When you understand that it's not your power that you need to obey him, but it's God's power. What it does is it gives you confidence because you're saying this is no longer about me. It's about Him working through me. And the pressure begins to, to come off. The, power, the pressure to impress other people. The pressure to pull up yourselves by your bootstraps. You begin to forget about all that when you realize that it's God's power at work in me that lets me obey Him. You see, this thing that Paul is talking about, work your salvation out with fear and trembling. He's not saying fear like be afraid. He's not saying, you know, be fearful like God is going to smack you over your head when you mess up. God is not there sitting on his throne waiting for you to make an error so he could smack you around and say, yeah, I see you messed up again. Get out of my presence. I don't want nothing to do with you. The fear that Paul is talking about there is uh, is a fear that the writer of Hebrews mentions in chapter 4. And and it's this fear that, man, if, if I don't walk in obedience, I might miss what God has for me. Because the fruit of our obedience is always the blessing of God. In Hebrews 4, it says, God's promise of entering His rest still stands. So we ought to, here it is, tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. That some of you, through your disobedience, are failing to experience the mercy of God. The peace of God, the peace that you're searching for because of disobedience is not experienced and you miss it. We should fear that. The purpose, the calling, the blessings of God on your life, if you, if you, if you walk in disobedience, it says we should tremble with fear that we might fail to experience the great outpouring. That God has for us. Because of what? Because we disobey Him. This changes the perspective of obedience. We no longer have to obey out of duty. You see, in our culture, we obey out of duty. It's my duty to obey. It becomes a drag. It becomes something that becomes, you know, we we dislike it. We, We don't like it. We no longer have to obey out of duty, but we obey now out of delight. Delights the Father. And it delights us when we obey. Why? Because we know now that we won't fail to experience His blessings in our life. Paul continues here in verse 14 and he says, Do everything without complaining and arguing. Whoa. That woke some people up so that none of you can so so that no one can criticize you live clean innocent lives as children of god shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people paul saying look don't do anything complaining or arguing that word complaining there is another translation say grumbling that's the thinking like look okay god i'm going to do it but i'm not going to be happy doing it or well, you're just complaining it's that thing under your breath when they get your order wrong at Starbucks and they say, oh, just these people again. The, the external, the complaining is internal. It's a grumbling. It's, it's, a, it's a complaining, right? And, and we get so haughty underneath our bread and breath and we begin to murmur and it's an inner condition. It begins to grow out and it expresses itself through the next verb there, which is arguing. This is the outward expression now. Now when someone comes at you, you're quick with the comeback. And man, if they hit you with a 7, you're going to hit them with a 12. Have you ever argued with people like that? They're so fast. God did not design my mind that quick. And I think I'm getting the upper hand on him. And then they give this comeback and I'm just like, what do I do? And my marriage has taught me that. God has gifted my wife with a comeback. I have to take time and recover and think and plan and strategize. But, but that, 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 that spirit of, of arguing, Paul says, don't do anything about that. The image here that he's saying is, remember the nation of Israel when God was bringing manna from heaven to them to sustain them, to bless them. Right? God is giving them food in the desert place. And they're waking up every morning and they're saying, where's the beef? Bread again, God? I mean, come on. He's reminding them of saying, don't be like the people in the nation of Israel who complained against God when God was just trying to bless them. Listen, you could do everything without complaining about anything. I'll put that on your refrigerator this week. Do everything without complaining about anything. You know, there's things that we love to complain about. We complain when we lose control, right? Any other control freaks here? The minute things get out of your control, the minute things don't go to your plan, we start complaining, we start getting uh, r- r- really angry, and we start you know, expressing ourselves through anger and through arguing and through pushing people away. And what's that showing? That's just showing that we don't trust God. If we fully understood that He was in control of all things, we wouldn't act that way. There's no awareness within us. And then the other thing that we complain about is that all of us, in a way, are entitled. When we don't get what we deserve, we think we deserve better, right? So what do we do? We complain about it. You don't get the service you want at the restaurant. Hey, what do you do? You complain about it. We've come in this culture where we complain about everything. If something is not up to par... We go and we put a complaint against it. And here Paul is saying, look, uh, uh, your spirit of entitlement here is showing that your heart is not really grateful. So how do we break this cycle of of complaining, of arguing? One, be aware of God's presence in everything. When you're aware that God's presence is in everything, the, the, the need to argue and complain suddenly go away. Two, live a life of gratitude. It's hard to complain when you're thankful It's the antidote to complaining is gratitude. And the third thing, trust God. Trust God for the things in your life. Listen, I've never heard anyone say, wow, I feel so much better now that I've complained about everything. And that just solved everything. Never heard anyone ever say that. Paul says, look, don't do anything with arguing and complaining. Why? He says this will be the result of that. He says, one, no one will be able to criticize you. That means when you do everything uh, and complain about nothing, that means people look at you different. That means people now respond to you different. They can no longer criticize you. Listen, it's hard for people to hear the good news from you if all they're used to hearing from you is complaints. If at your job all you do is complain, 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 and moan and groan and mumble, how are you ever going to share the good news of the gospel with them? Now this is especially important in a culture like today where there's so much division in the church. And listen, it was the same way at this church that Paul was writing this letter to. There was division in that church. There was people not getting along. And Paul is addressing the issue and he's saying, Would you obey God? Would you work it out? Work out and obey God, Right? He's giving you the power not to complain about things. He'll give you the power not to argue about things. It allows you not to be criticized. And the second thing it says is that it'll make you shine bright in the darkness, that you will become a contrast, that you'll become a beacon for people. And where everyone sees darkness, they'll look at you and say, that's a person of light. They're attracted to you. It's like mosquitoes, right? When they see a light, what do they do? They run to it. They, or they don't run to it. They fly to it. When I worked at Midway Airport when I was in college, I worked outside with the airplanes. I worked on the ramp. And it was my job to hold up these $7 night wands, they were called. You can see a picture of them here. And these things cost about $7 a piece. I know because our bosses would always make, give us a hard time because we would be done with them, and we would throw them in this bin. And they would say, don't throw the wands! Those things cost $7 each. And it just got drilled in my head, so now I treated these things like they were like gold, right? I would place them gently, I would wrap them up like they were babies. But they were $7. But what these $7 wands did is they guided in an aircraft that cost about $80 million. The person driving an $80 million aircraft filled with people was looking at a $7 wand and following it. And that plane was under my control. If I told that plane to turn, you know what the plane would do? It would turn. If I put an X up in that plane, I told that plane to stop, that pilot would pump the brakes and everyone in the plane would jerk forward and they would stop. But what caused them to follow me? is that there was a light that was shining. That in the darkness, there was a light for them to follow. And when we live a life of obedience, when you're empowered by God to live a life of obedience, what you become is you become like these wands. And now people begin to notice you, and people begin to go to you for direction. And you could say, turn this way, or turn that way, or come straight, or stop or hold, or whatever you tell them, they're going to begin to listen to you. Why? Because they know that you're a beacon. That there's something about you. And that's so empowering. Because Paul says, look, you will shine bright in the darkness. When things are the most dark, like in 2020, things were very dark, weren't they? Man, the light of the church of the living God was shining bright. And on Saturday mornings, you would see hundreds of cars being guided in by what? By humans. But what was it about these humans? They were shining bright in the darkness, giving the hope and the love of Christ. I'm talking about our food pantries, right? And all during the week throughout the city, there would be these beacons of hope, beacons of light. People of God saying, Lord, I'm going to obey you. You've called me to go out and to volunteer. You've called me to go out there and help. So I'm going to walk in obedience. And because of that, you became a beacon, a light, a guide. And hundreds of thousands of people were blessed. This is what Paul is talking about here when he says do nothing with complaining or grumbling. The second thing your obedience requires is that you hold on to the message of Christ. You hold on to the message of Christ and you show the world. You hold it out for others to see. Verse 16, Paul says, hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. He says, hold firmly unto the word of life. What is the word of life? Most people, you ask them, what is the word of life? They're going to point to the Bible. That's not what he's talking about. There's only one other time in Scripture where the word of life is mentioned. It's in 1 John 1, and it says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, who we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is what? The word of life. When... Paul says, hold on firmly to the word of life. He's saying, hold on to Jesus. Hold on to the message of Jesus. Now we learn the message of Jesus through the word of God. And we need to know the word, and we need to hold on to the word. But the word is not the end. Jesus is the end. The word is the means. The word is how we get to know Jesus. We know Jesus through the word, through relationship with him, through loving him, through obeying him, right? But Paul is saying, hold tightly to the message of jesus you see peter and john when they were preaching in 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 the book of acts and people were astonished at their brilliance at their boldness these were uneducated guys these were common guys these were not scholarly guys but they were like dumbfounding people and they were schooling people and the bible says that obviously they knew that these two had what had been with jesus Not that they had read about Jesus, not that they had studied about Jesus, but they had spent time with Jesus. They were in Jesus' presence. Now listen, we got to know the Word, but you have to hold on to Jesus. And it's possible, just let me say this, it's possible to know the Word and not know Jesus. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, and he says, look, you guys study the Scriptures, you guys know the Word of God, and it points to me, but yet you reject me. So you know the word, but you don't know me. So it's possible to know your word and not know Jesus. So we need to hold tightly, as Paul says, hold firmly to the word of life. So that what? So that when I go to be with him, I will know that my life did not fail to experience it. But so that I will know that I ran this race and I did what God called me to do and that my obedience would be made perfect. And man, did the church do that. Because 200 years after Paul would write this letter, when Paul wrote this letter, the Roman government was waiting to kill him. And in a short 200 years, it, it seems like a long time, but it's really not in the span of history. In 200 years, people in Rome would be bowing their knees to Christ. What allowed this church that was being tortured being fed to lions, do you know that they would put Christians on poles, cover them with wax, and basically turn them into human candles? That, they were the streetlights in Rome. Christians. Did you know that it was people's jobs to think of the most sadistic torture of which to kill Christians? What, what, what allowed Christians A group that was so persecuted, so afflicted, so damaged to win the most powerful empire the world had ever known in under 200 years. What was it? Was it that they knew the the word completely well? Hey, they weren't Bibles back then. What was it? It was their obedience. It was their obedience to say, God, it's your power at work in me. And like Christ was my example, if he went to the cross in obedience, hey, I will walk into a stadium and stare a lion face to face in death if it means blessing and glorifying you, God. And it was this that, that, that caused this movement to spread from a small, broken, fearful people to this now powerful, powerful, Movement of God that takes over the greatest empire that the world had ever seen, the Roman Empire. One of the early church historians, his name was Eusebius of Caesarea, he would write in his history books what the Christians would do. And when there was plagues and when there was pandemics in the cities, The people would leave. They would get out of there. I mean, who wants to be around a community that's sick and that's dying? Nobody wants to be in there, right? They all got away. Who wants to stay in a freezing cold state with no power, no water? Hey, go to Cancun. Sorry, I had to go there. But what would the Christians do? The Christians didn't go to Cancun. The Christians went to the cities. The Christians stayed there and ministered to the people. The Christians stayed there and prayed with people at their death. The Christians fed the most sick. And this historian said, listen, this is his words. He says, the deeds of the Christians are on everybody's lips. And they glorify the God of the Christians. These pagan people are glorifying the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they were followers of Jesus and that they were pious and truly reverent to God. You see, it was this obedience, this radical obedience, them holding on to Christ tightly. And ministering to people in the darkest, they were shining bright like diamonds in the darkest of the sky. Why? Because they were walking in obedience. And everybody now was praising the name of this Christian God. Man, what would God do with our church if we were to walk in this kind of obedience? If people would see us in these dark times walking with this kind of bold faith to say, Christ, I will hold on to the word of life. Because I don't want to miss it. When that day comes, and this is what Paul is talking about, it's all about that hour of meeting with Jesus and speaking with Jesus, right? And saying, look, when that time comes, I don't want to be a person who misses it. Let's wrap this up. Let's land a plane. Verse 17, it says, But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. Paul is talking about, like in the temple, they used to pour out the blood sacrifice on the altar. Paul is saying, look, I will rejoice even if my life is poured out like that. He says, and I want all of you to share in that joy. Yes, you should rejoice. And I will share your joy, even if it means my death. So your obedience requires that you pour yourself out And be filled with joy. Life is not about being filled up. Life is about being poured out. So what does your obedience look like? How are you going to obey God? One, do everything without complaining. Two, cling to the message of Jesus. And three, live your life in a way that pours out. When you know that you're full, you can't help but to pour out. When you understand that God's supply is endless, you want to pour out. You're happy to pour out. Why? Because it makes room for you to be refilled again. Listen, I know it's intimidating. I know it's intimidating to say, I can't complain. I can't argue. God, I've got to do all these things that you've commanded me to do. I know it's intimidating. But the good news is that it's not your power that's doing it. Second Peter, I'll finish with this. One three says, "By his divine power, by God's divine power, God has given us everything we need, everything to live a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know Him. By whose power? By God's divine power. How do you work out your obedience? Understand that it's God's power in you. Can we stand together?